Las acciones dicen más que las palabras. Abre el Pro Access Tailgate disponible de la nueva Ford F-150. Sí, una puerta oscilatoria de fácil acceso para convertir su cama en tu nuevo taller. Conecta tus herramientas al Pro Power Onboard disponible. Ya sea que necesites soldar o cortar madera, con la F-150 puedes. Fuerza así de inteligente solo puede ser F-150. Construida con orgullo Ford. Pro Access Tailgate disponible en la primavera de 2024. When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously. Shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Hi, guys. Here to another episode of In Our Words. Let's welcome today's guest. He is Jonathan Kaiman. He is the former LA Times Beijing bureau chief, and he will share with us the struggle he went through and he keeps going through due to the sexual misconduct allegation from journalist Felicia Sonmes. He will walk us through his side of the story and how he was being able to recover from his depression after all of this. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you for being here. I want to give you the space to talk with me and see what you went through mm -hmm. after this, and if it could help to understand all the situation because there is mm -hmm. always two different sides. For sure. And yeah, I want people to start thinking instead of like just read one side of a story because there is always different sides. And For sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, and uh, you know, this is the first time I'll be talking about this publicly. Um, so quite frankly, I'm a little bit nervous. Um, So I guess I'll start by talking a little bit about my situation. And um, my situation is that two former friends uh, accused me over the past year of essentially pressuring them into sex. And because of those accusations, I've lost my job um, as a reporter. I've lost my career, which was a dream career. You know, I've lost my reputation. I lost a book deal. I've lost the bulk of my savings. And um, on two occasions since May, when this second allegation came out, I, I came very close to attempting suicide. So, I, you know, I was at, at the lowest, uh, you know, I've ever been in my life. Um, so, you know, I've, I've lived in China for, or I, I had lived in China for nine years up until May as a foreign reporter. And um, the Chinese government really doesn't like foreign reporters. So I've been detained a half a dozen times. I've, I've done some dangerous reporting and dealt with human rights issues, natural disasters, etc. Um, but I've never been more terrified of an interview than this one. It's just such a sensitive subject. And I'm not here with any PR people or any lawyers or anything. So, so this is all, you know, I'm on my own and this is, this is coming from my heart. So... Yeah, I can see you that you're very, like, nervous and everything. Like, you're speaking for, like, doing something right also for everyone so it's kind of like I know that you are in a position that is not dangerous but like it's right. sensitive well I know you know norms are shifting and um, and for the better I, I think and um, you know I know some people aren't going to like what I say hopefully I'll be able to help out some other people um, you know I've spoken with a lot of men really over the past eight months who have been revisiting their sexual histories uh, over the past year And I've really had to do exactly the same thing, only I've had to do it publicly. And there have been 
major costs. So, you know, I, I know that many listeners will, will feel that the accused deserve no sympathy, but I'm, I'm very personally invested in this conversation right now. And as a former journalist, somebody dedicated to the truth, and also as a human being who, who's gone through something um, very intense, I, I feel like it is important to, to hear all sides. So I'll, I'll give you a bit of my personal background. Um, before all of this began, I considered myself a pretty normal 31-year-old guy. You know, I'm not wealthy. I'm obviously not a big celebrity. Um, I grew up in a middle-class household in suburban New Jersey. Then I went to Vassar College in upstate New York. I studied Chinese. I, I was always really passionate about the language um, and, and the culture. And I, I moved to China in 2009 on a Fulbright research grant. It's like a government grant. I spent a year studying ethnomusicology and anthropology in southwest China. It was really a an amazing experience, you know, going to little villages and recording songs. And then I moved to Beijing to start a career. You know, it was the middle of the financial crisis, so there were very few opportunities in the States, but China was really on the rise. Um, and uh, and again, I was just so passionate about it. I've always been driven by passion. You know, it was a, this vast place, it's changing so rapidly, and it was so poorly understood from the outside. You know, I, I didn't know anything about it before I went. So I found all these stories to tell. And then um, in 2011, I had this amazing stroke of good luck, and I, I met the right people. I met these journalists who helped me get a foot in the door in, in the industry. Um, so the first few years were very, very hard. I worked as an intern for the New York Times, then I worked as an intern for the LA Times. I was doing this all on a stipend of about $300 a month. So I was, I was eating only at these like little local eateries that made me really sick. You know, I couldn't afford good food. Um, and Beijing is just a smoggy place. It's crowded. It's repressive. You know, I was living in a tiny room, you know, sleeping with a sleeping bag, um, you know, in a little space heater. Um, I was working 12 hours a day every day. I barely socialized. It was a very, you know, rough time. Then in 2012, I got my first real paying job as a, as a China reporter for The Guardian, the, the British newspaper. And I was still working freelance, you know, it wasn't a super high paying gig, it wasn't very stable, but I was an accredited reporter and I was making enough money to live. Then a few years later, my career took off. The LA Times hired me as a staff Asia correspondent in 2015. It was my first job with benefits like healthcare, you know, um, and it was a dream come true. Then in August 2016, my boss um, at the time, the Beijing bureau chief returned to the US, the company allowed me to take her place. Um, and I became the Beijing bureau chief. And it's not as big of a deal as it sounds. This is a tiny bureau, two correspondents, um, and two local news assistants. So I didn't have a ton of people under my command, but it was a, it was a big title and a big responsibility. And I, I took it very seriously, you know. So in spring 2017, and, and, and this was pretty important to my story, I was elected as president of the Foreign Correspondents Club of China, which is sort of an industry association in Beijing. It was a social club and media advocacy group. There are about 200 members. I did it out of a sense of civic duty. I wanted to help my community. I spent a lot of time drafting meeting agendas and going to the bank. We mainly hosted social gatherings and talks and such. Then in September 2017, I got a book deal, a big book deal, um, to write about a story. It was a story about American pilots in China during World War II. And it was a story that I had invested just a tremendous amount of, of my own time and, and money into for about seven years. You know, this story was, was very core to my identity. 
I also, like most people, I, I think I developed a lot personally over the course of my 20s. And then in, um, in 2016, I met a wonderful woman named Charlotte, um, another expat in Beijing. We began dating very seriously, going on vacations together and such. And we were planning on moving back to the States together. She would go to law school. I'd take a year off and write on my book um, before going back to the LA Times. And I figured in a few years, I'd be able to buy a house, maybe start a family. You know, I'd worked really hard for many years and finally everything was, was falling into line. Well, that's how everybody can see, like you start from zero and then you build up and you make a lot of sacrifices and, and then you achieve what you wanted to achieve after so long after and you're super years, happy. Yeah. yeah, I can see it in, in your eyes. Like You know, it's far away. It's smoggy. It's a difficult place to live, you know, and so it, it took a lot of effort over many years to forge a community there and to sort of forge a purpose for myself. And then the allegation happened. And the allegations happened. And can you tell us what happened exactly when uh, Laura Tucker said right. something? I guess I should rewind a little bit to late 2012, early 2013, which was when I got my first job. So around then I decided, you know, in addition to getting my first job, you know, I needed to get my, my love life together. I'd been working 12-hour days. I didn't have any time to date. And I found myself at 25 years old. I was broke. You know, I was super out of shape. And um, in romantic situations, at least, I was really, really shy. And, and so my, my longest relationship at that point in my life had lasted something like six months. It was very short. And in late 2012, I suffered a string of, of really hard rejections. You know, people that I really liked didn't like me back. And I thought I needed to change. I, I blamed myself. So I started going to the gym. You know, I got a decent haircut. I bought these new and fashionable clothes. Um, and um, I decided to become more confident. Um, and I guess as a result of that, I got fairly promiscuous. I was a little bit cocky. And on the weekends, I would go out with a bunch of friends. We would get really drunk. We'd stay out really late. Some nights, I would hook up with somebody. You know, most nights, I, I didn't, but some nights I would. And my roommate back then was a woman named Laura Tucker. Um, she worked at, we were the same age, really. Um, she worked at an art gallery. Um, and I considered her one of my closest friends. You know, we, we lived together through those those years of, of struggle in, in Beijing. And so we, we would sit in, um, there was no living room in our apartment. So we would sit in her bedroom um, on the couch and we'd talk about our families. You know, we'd talk about our professional aspirations and our love lives. You know, she'd give me relationship advice, et cetera. And um, eventually I moved out. Um, and then one night in spring 2013, we hooked up and we both regretted it. Um, pretty quickly, and I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that in, in a little bit. But afterwards, we didn't maintain a sexual relationship, but I genuinely thought we, we continued to be friends. You know, she invited me out for drinks and to events, and, um, and I, I always felt, you know, very comfortable hanging out with her. And eventually, she moved back to the States, and, and we lost touch. Fast forward five years to, to January 11, 2018. That day, I still think of it as, as the worst day of my life. I woke up um, at about 9 a.m. I grabbed some coffee. I checked my email. And I went on Twitter at about 10 a.m. And I, I got a notification that would ultimately change change my life. Um, so the handle for the Twitter account was Laura Tucker. And the tweet said, sharing something from 2013 at JR Kamen, which is my Twitter handle, hashtag me too. And it linked to a Medium blog post. And... Clearly, it was about 
that night. Um, so here's how I experienced that night. Laura and I, and, and our accounts match up in many ways. So I'm, Laura and I were, were dancing at a club in Beijing and we kissed, which I think kind of took both of us by surprise. And she invited me to hop on her motor scooter and go back to her, to her home, which, which used to be my home. So we went back home, it was about 2 a.m. We went up to her room, we flopped down on the bed, we began sort of kissing and, and taking our clothes off as, as so many hookups proceed, you know. And at one point she, she hesitated. She said, I don't know about this. And, and so I stopped and she got up um, from the bed. Then, and, and this is where we have sort of a point of contention in, in our recollections. We had, a, we had a brief conversation. I think it lasted something like three minutes. I remember I offered to leave at one point, um, but I also remember feeling, you know, I was, it was, uh, we were, I was really drunk. It was really late. It was How cold old outside. Were you? 20, 26, I believe. Okay. 25, 26. Be, I'd be happy to leave. Um, but, you know, I'd been in that room a hundred times. I was comfortable there. Um, and um, so I sat up to put my shoes on. And she came back to the bed and we began kissing again. So I asked if she had a condom. She got up and she got one. We had sex. I stayed over and I left the following morning. But according to her medium post, um, this is how it went from her perspective. So a few minutes after we began, it all started the same. Then a few minutes after we began hooking up on the bed, she decided she didn't want to go through with it, but she felt pressured to continue. So she said that I was laying in the bed. I pouted. I was whining. Uh, you know, she didn't think I was open to the night ending differently. So she ultimately decided to... and and. There's a quote, she said, place male pleasure above her own, and she came back to the bed. And we had sex, and she, she said, I felt gross for all of it. Afterwards, she sent me an email. The following day, she sent me an email saying that I had acted entitled, that I treated her badly, and I apologized afterwards profusely. I, f I felt terrible. You know, I, this so was, she wrote you an email, she, and she wrote me an email, you said yeah. sorry. I said sorry. I called her, and I said sorry. We went out. I, I, I said we should go out and meet up and talk about this. And we went out the following weekend, and, and over cake and coffee. We, we had a conversation. I, I thought I was very apologetic. I, I felt really bad. And I thought we remained friends, you know. So Did you remain friends, like, after that? Yeah, Did you yeah. kept having... She would invite me out every once in a while. Um, I would invite her out every once in a while. We would go out, you know, on, on friend dates, you know, we would grab a coffee, we would grab a, a drink. You know, she never, I, I never got the sense that she still held something against me. And I was grateful that she was willing to remain friends. So we fell out of touch for about five years, right? So I, I don't know Laura's life circumstances now very well. I, I don't know exactly what motivated her to, to post this online, but she wrote um, that she posted her story to raise awareness of, of sexual misconduct among expats and to be part of the Me Too movement. So I was shocked to read her post. And I, you know, I never thought at any time that I'd pressured her into sex. I stopped when she said no. I offered to leave, and I believed that when she did decide to have sex with me, it was because she genuinely wanted to. Because why else would she do that? You know, I, I'd known, if I had known that she had felt uncomfortable, that she was thinking the thoughts that she recounted in her post, I would have left instantly. But You thought you were friends and she would have been open to tell you. Right oh yeah, yeah. just like I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to have sex. With, you know, I, you can stay here, but I don't want to have sex. Or, like, no, you know, I, I really think you should go home, or, or you know, something like that. But I also, you know, I remember it being more sort of awkward and ambiguous. I, I didn't think she had real reservations a, a, about having sex with me. I thought she, I thought she was fairly enthusiastic about having sex with me. So, so this was all very shocking to me, both afterwards and five years later. So, I mean, like, uh, you know, some guys get off on on non consent. You know, they. They, they will seek sex 
from people that they know don't want to give it to them. And I think that's just so horrible. You know, I'm, I'm just not one of those people. I would never do that. You know, and if I knew that Laura felt pressured in any way, I, I would have stopped because that's a, you know, I would have left instantly because that's a, a huge turnoff for me. Um, so those apologies you brought are still felt right now. Like yeah. if ever, like she would have been uncomfortable, you would have said sorry as right now as well. Yeah. So I, you know, I apologized publicly after she publicly accused me, but, um, you know, immediately, like right after this happened, people began retweeting her tweet and expressing support for her. And people began calling on me to make a public statement. Um, some people tweeted that I should resign as president of the Foreign Correspondence Club because I no longer had the, the moral standing to represent my community. And there was a, a Hong Kong-based news website that decided to run a story on Laura's allegation. They emailed me requesting comment. So you were just friends. You were not like her boss or no, no, somebody we were, that had like power over her or something. No, I had no no power over her. I mean, we were we were friends. We were the same age. We worked in different industries, and I always saw her. You know, I was I always respected her quite a bit professionally, but we had no real professional overlap. Okay. But um, you know, I was still you know I, I saw her as a friend, and I, I saw my insensitivity that night, my, my sort of poor drunken judgment as having damaged our, our friendship. And I felt, quite frankly, I felt terrible. You know, I, I would I would never ever done that if I knew. So, you know, it was it was a shock to me five years later to, to read this post and read that she still carried this with her. You know, I was devastated by that. So I, I knew I had to make some sort of a public statement. So I called my bosses. I, I told them about this. And I called a few friends and I, I tried to figure out what to do. So, yeah, well, this is a very interesting situation because it's something very different from, let's say, stopping serial predator or something like that. I mean, it's not that I'm saying Lara is not right because, of course, as a woman, I would really hate if somebody would make me, I don't know, feel bad about right, not doing yeah. something. But, yeah, in a way... I mean, yeah, it's very far from that kind it's, of sick behavior. It's different. And, you know, it was, you know, I feel like this, this case, kind of like the Aziz Ansari case, you know, which is famously very controversial, you know, it really sparked a, a serious division in my community. People just read it in different ways. So here's the thing about being publicly shamed. In the moment, when you see something like this go live on the internet, you would do anything to make it stop. That's your first priority. It is absolutely viscerally terrifying because you know that this crowd of people online consuming this information has the power to take your life away from you, to deprive you of almost everything, if not everything you love, and you feel completely unable to protect yourself. So this was a very small insular community of journalists and other young professionals in Beijing. These were people that I knew people that I, that I loved. And suddenly they were discussing on the internet details of my most private sex life. You know, it wasn't, the story wasn't only open to consumption, it was open to debate. You know, people had to pick sides. And in a way, I knew that that debate and how it resolved, how it played out would decide my entire future. So that night I resigned um, as president of the Foreign Correspondence Club. Um, I was traumatized. I was very upset and I didn't want to spend the rest of my time in Beijing mired in scandal. You know, I knew a lot of people were upset at me. In my case, it really hit a nerve in the community and the debate just kept on going. Um, so a lot of women were very angry and they believed based on Laura's account that I'd behaved boorishly that night. I think a lot of them have had very similar experiences with men 
And so they saw reflections of, of those experiences in, in that story. And I understand that. And, and I deeply empathize with that. But a lot of men and a lot of women too believed that I had done nothing wrong. You know, they said pouting and whining was not sexual assault. And when Laura wrote that she decided to put male pleasure above her own, that meant that she had given consent. So there was this debate and people were fighting each other. And I had no control over that debate. I played no role in it. So I understood, and I, I still understand, and I, I appreciate deeply the importance of this conversation about what you would call bad dates or poorly communicated hookups or what, you know, whatever you would want to call them. But I was also, as a human being, humiliated. And I was horrified to see my community, these people that I, that I loved and had so much respect for, really put me in a pillory, shaming me and treating me as, treating, treating one of the worst moments of my 20s, essentially, as a point in a larger debate. You know, it was as if I didn't exist. So I, I, I fell into a very deep depression afterwards. And I changed the things I could. You know, I stopped drinking. I stopped going out. I started seeing a therapist. I began reading about the Me Too movement every day, trying to get a handle on how social mores are changing and where my situation fit into the broader story. About the mental illness, I remember there's the one moment where I knew I really needed help, where I knew that something was wrong. And I'd, I'd never been depressed before. I'd never been anxious. I've always been a little bit neurotic and very hard driving and very hard on myself, but I'd never been depressed. And so it was a, maybe a week or, or two weeks after, after Laura posted her allegation, I was in Texas reporting for my book, or doing research for my book. And I was in a rental, driving a rental car and returning it to the airport. And this story must sound so weird, but I, I, got, I got stuck behind a tractor trailer like, you know, one of those 18-wheelers, a big truck. And um, the there were mud mud flaps on the truck, you know, that hang over the tires so the mud doesn't splash back. And the brand of the mud flaps was Great Dane, Great Dane mud flaps. And there was a silhouette of a Great Dane, like a picture of it. And my my family used to own a Great Dane when I was a little kid uh, named Shadow. And um, Shadow died maybe 10 12, 15 years ago, I don't remember, but a long time ago. And I remember mostly being annoyed by Shadow, but I saw the outline of the Great Dane and I thought about Shadow and I thought about how Shadow died and how we didn't have a good, I didn't have a good relationship with my dog. And I began crying and I, and I couldn't stop. And I was just weeping, just crying so hard that I had to pull the car over onto the side of the road and, and wait it out because it wasn't safe to drive. And, and that's when I knew, like, this is not rational. You know, my mind is not wired. So you went through a big depression. Yeah. After Laura's allegation, there was a second that came out accusing you of mm -hmm. sexual misconduct. And she's Felicia Sunmas. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Yeah, so Felicia, just like Laura, had been a good friend for many years. We never worked together, but she was about four years older than me. She was a bit more professionally established. She'd worked for, for more major papers. And I, you know, I really looked up to her, and I, I thought we were very good friends. And um, you know, I should also note that for the past three years or so, I've been moving away from the heavy drinking slash hookup culture of, of my mid-20s. And I was really, at the time, I was looking forward to building a quieter life with my girlfriend. So there was this one day in in September 2017. This is a very recent thing. And I decided to take this one Saturday in September. It was a foreign correspondence club summer party as an opportunity to really let loose and, and just have a great time. I spent that day with a big crowd of journalists and diplomats and other young professionals in Beijing, um, drinking craft beers and cocktails around a pool at an embassy compound. 
And after that party finished at a lot, maybe 10, 10, 11 p.m., a group of us went to a karaoke club, which in Beijing is, for in most of Asia, you know, you, you rent a little room and you have your friends and it's, it's sort of very tightly packed and people sing together and jump up and down and drink and, uh, you know, it's a good time. So we were all pretty drunk. And as people started leaving the club at around 2 a.m., Felicia said, oh, let's go back upstairs and check in, in the room if anybody, maybe if somebody left a coat or something. And, and she kissed me. We kissed. We sort of made out for a bit. And then she offered me a ride home on her scooter. Felicia, in her allegation, which she sent out as an email for, to, to the Foreign Correspondence Club in May, she said her memory of that night was, was very hazy. But she recast what she did remember in a way that made me look like an absolute monster, just the most reprehensible person um, you know, it was a very graphic, um, it was a very graphic email. She alleged that on the back of her scooter, I, I basically groped her. And then when we stopped at a spot near my apartment, I escalated things very aggressively with her. And, um, you know, sort of toning down the graphic language. But when she drove me the rest of the way home, I tried to escalate things again at the foot of my apartment building. And then she decided to go upstairs with me, maybe to make out or drink some water or something. My apartment is at the, the top, or was at the top floor of a six-story walk-up. So we walked upstairs, and there we had sex. She was hazy about those circumstances as well. But then she, she drove herself home. And, you know, again, I don't want to get into super graphic detail, but in my memory, whenever she expressed any discomfort with what was happening, I stopped immediately. And I didn't continue until she made it very clear that she wanted to continue. So Felicia did say no. But she didn't say, no, I don't want to do this. She said, I don't want to do this here, outside. You know, she said she wanted to go upstairs. And I didn't. I remember hesitating myself several times. I remember telling her that we probably shouldn't be doing this, that I didn't want to hurt our friendship. You know, I was about a year into a very happy relationship. But alcohol can be dangerous. You know, my judgment was very poor that night. I, I shouldn't have agreed to get on her scooter. I shouldn't have escalated things outside. I shouldn't have accepted her invitation to walk me up to my apartment. And I continued that hookup with Felicia for the same reasons that I should have shut it down. You know, we were both way too drunk, it was irresponsible. And ironically, I didn't want to hurt a friend by turning her away. You know, my, my drunken state, that, that made sense. So she called me afterwards. She apologized for driving me home drunk and potentially damaging my relationship. I apologized for escalating things outside. And we agreed to remain friends. And that's how things were for about four months. So again, I, th I saw no reason to think that things were not okay between us. And I can't speculate on Felicia's motivations for sending that email, but she strongly implied that she was very upset that people defended me against Laura's allegation. It was very closely tied to that and that she felt I'd gotten off easy. Well, I mean, I can't understand when someone maybe afterwards being more focused with their mind could be thinking that they made a mistake and regret it. Yeah. The thing is that I don't know, I never experienced that because I don't drink. But I, I heard a lot of my girlfriends maybe, you know, like experiencing things like this and then the next day being like, I feel awful that I did yeah. that or, or something like this, of course. And, and there's a guy behind every one of those stories, right? And yeah, there is a guy, felt, there is a woman. Too, you know? and, and I understand like every, every single woman, it's, it's sensitive. 
everyone experiences things in a different way. Also, men are in, but in in those kind of situation, it's it's very thin line between controlling themselves and letting, let's say, nature get into us. Well, I mean, what what alcohol does, and this is we all know this, right? It it lowers our inhibitions and it clouds our judgment. And if you have a culture in which people are constantly getting drunk and having sex, you know, which is one of the most intimate things you can do, there are bound to be miscommunications. So there's bound to be trauma. You, you know? said that right now you're not drinking anymore. I haven't drank in, in nine months. Yeah. Right now, you feeling like you would be apologizing if you had a chance, or if you would see again Laura or Felicia. Back then, you did it on Twitter, yeah. right? Yeah. Your lawyer talked to you about that tweet. Yeah. What did he say? And here's the situation. Like, I would, I would do anything to be able to really reconcile and find some closure with with Laura and Felicia. Um, but here's the thing about trying to reconcile this stuff in public. Um, and what makes it so difficult. So after Laura posted her accusation, I felt that I was I was really in a bind. Um, I wanted to acknowledge Laura's feelings um, and, and validate them, but I, I could find no way to do it. I saw two choices. Either I apologize and I essentially plead guilty in the court of public opinion, or I deny any wrongdoing at all, which seemed to me callous and, and mean and sort of disingenuous, you know? So I decided it was the right thing to do and it was the most honest thing to do to apologize. You know, I, I'd unintentionally hurt a friend. She carried that with her for a very long time and I really wanted to make amends. So I, I drafted a public apology and I said in that public apology, I said, Laura, I'm so sorry. I said, I behaved badly and, I, and I'm reflecting on my mistakes. And then I... You know, I didn't want to put anything online that wasn't vetted. You know, I didn't want to just go and post it. So I, I ran it by some friends and contacts. And a lawyer told me, um, you know, I had one lawyer look at it. And a lawyer told me that if I wrote that, that I that I behaved badly, I'd basically be admitting guilt. And admitting guilt could expose me to serious legal liability. You know, I could end up in, in court. And the prospect of that and spending years, you know, maybe tangled up in, in something legal was terrifying was terrifying to me. And so I took that line out. And my apology ended up looking something like that of basically any man in the news who's been publicly accused of sexual misconduct, rightly or wrongly. You know, I'm sorry about how I made you feel. Or I'm sorry if I did anything to, to harm you, you know. And that's a very dissatisfying way to apologize. But the truth is, you know, I, I, I felt like I had a gun to my head with the rest of my life on the line. I could choose between contrition and self-protection, and ultimately I chose, I chose to protect myself. Did they legally press charge no. on, into you? No, there, there was no legal dimension there to, to any of this. There was investigation into you? No legal investigation. It was all just posts on, online. Well, and after all this, you suffered for a long time of depression. And then what did you do to go over this? And when did you thought about the worst? Yeah, okay. Well, because after, after Felicia's allegation, I mean, that, that hit me very hard. So you know, j just to give you some context, here's how Felicia's allegations spread. So she sent them in an email to the Foreign Correspondence Club board. It was a very long email, which immediately sent it out to the whole membership, about 200 journalists. 
And a Hong Kong news website published an article about the email, quoting large sections of it right away. People began tweeting about the article, including lots of, you know, New York Times and Washington Post and Wall Street Journal reporters, just very high-profile people. And um, the rush to judgment was, was just immediate. Um, it was very swift and it was extremely harsh. I remember some journalist on Twitter said that anybody who had stood up for me after Laura's allegation deserved to be investigated themselves, which I found very distressing. And so the following day, it, it didn't take very long. The LA Times suspended me pending an investigation and they published an article quoting Felicia's email in detail. You know, they saw it going around on Twitter. They felt they had to to publish an article. And that gave other papers carte blanche to publish their own stories. The New York Times published one, the Associated Press and so on. They all published similar stories. And if you're wondering, the, the papers did ask me for, for comment. You know, they, they called me to see what I had to say. And before this happened, I'd always wondered why people didn't punch back in these situations, why they didn't say, okay, you know, this person accused me of this, here's the story from my perspective, and why they didn't really just talk it out. Now I know why. And it's because... I mean, just put, put yourself in this kind of situation. Reporters were calling me and they were saying, we're going to run this story, um, basically labeling you as a criminal in, in 15 minutes. Do you have anything to say? And at that moment, I was quite literally standing at the window of a friend's 22nd story apartment. I was thinking about jumping, you know, I was thinking nobody's going to believe me no matter what I say, you know. It was the middle of the night in the U.S., so I couldn't even get in touch with people I knew and trusted. The only people I'd been able to contact were lawyers. And the only advice the lawyers would give me was, no matter what, don't say anything. Basically, what, whatever you say can and will be used against you. Be very, 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 very careful, right? And so within 24 hours of Felicia's email, I'd basically been painted as a criminal in the press. And because I'd been following the news about this stuff so closely, I knew the second that her email went out that she'd basically given me, in the court of public opinion, a life sentence of public shame. And so because I'd been through one accusation already, I kind of knew what to expect emotionally. You know, I knew that no matter what the allegation was and whether it was true or entirely true or, or partly true or not true at all, I would almost certainly lose my job and my book deal, no matter what. And I knew that if that happened, I would probably want to commit suicide because these were the things that were integral to my identity. And, and when your identity is gone, you know, what else do you have? So I was prepared. I called a few friends um, and I had them watch over me very closely for the first couple of days uh, to prevent me from committing any acts of self-harm. One of them booked me a flight to my parents' home in Phoenix, Arizona, and flew back with me. And I was on real suicide watch for about three weeks. And, and I, you know, honestly, I still suffer from, from suicidal ideation from time to time. It's the kind of thing that, that stays with you. Yeah, well, you lost everything after that. And what do you think if, I mean, this is very, very strong to say, if you would have suicide, you think that Laura and Felicia would have feel some sort of relief? Maybe. I mean, so here's the thing. And here, here's where that emotion comes from. You know that dream? It's kind of like a stock dream, like a cliche, where you're, I don't know if you've ever had this dream, where you're, you, you suddenly, this, you're in class or something, and you suddenly discover that you're, you're naked, and that everybody's staring at you, and you're humiliated, everybody's staring, you know? It's kind of like that dream, only it's real, you know, and it's so much worse, because not only are you naked, you know, uh, uh, you know in front of your peers, they're discussing and debating your your private sex life. They're painting you as a, as a, as a predator or a criminal. Because 
this happened on the internet, it was forever. You know, it's been etched into digital stone. So not only did my current friends and colleagues see me naked in front of the world in quite possibly the worst moments of my life, really, so did my friends from high school. So did my friends from college. So did everybody who reads the New York Times. And now anybody who Googles my name in the future, for example, a job interviewer, they all have to judge me through this lens of these sexual interactions. So there's this massive social stigma right now against people who have been accused. And it leaves me wondering, how am I ever going to find a job, you know? Even applying to grad school will be virtual impossible. You know, several admissions consultants, you know, these people that you pay thousands of dollars to to help with your applications have rejected me. Uh, you know, they, they don't, they've Googled my name and they don't want to offer me their services. So what, what, what about an actual admissions committee, you know? So an online shaming it's not, you know, because of all this, it's not contained to any one aspect of your life. You know, it affects your personal life, it's your social life, it's your family, it's your career, it's your finances, it's your professional network. And the collateral damage is just so immense. You know, this has shattered the people closest to me, you know, my, my parents, my girlfriend. And although, you know, I've, I've probably lost financially uh, at least $180,000 as a result of these allegations, between medical expenses, lawyers' fees, and and lost lost income um, in the immediate future, and I've come to associate all sex with fear and and shame, you know. And um, really, at the core of it, is I feel like my identity has been destroyed, like it's been sort of murdered. Like before this happened, I was so many things. I was a journalist. I was a Mandarin speaker, I was an aspiring author, you know, a China watcher, a leader in my community, and at least I thought I was a pretty nice guy, you know, and I really cared about being a nice guy, and I cared about being respectable. Um, and I'd built a home in Beijing with a community that I'd considered family, and now that family was gone, that identity was gone, you know, all I was really was a man on the wrong side of the Me Too movement, I'd been, I'd been, I was an accused man, and so all of these other things basically cease to matter. So it's this thing called the, the just world fallacy, which is this idea that we live in a fundamentally fair world and that everybody gets what he or she deserves, like karma, you know. And we all buy into it on some level, even if we know that, say, somebody who was in a terrible car accident didn't necessarily deserve to be in a terrible car accident or whatever. Um, but I was looking for answers as to why my life had felt fallen apart so quickly, like why I'd been so blind to this stuff. Um, I messed up, you know, I had my shot at a good life, at achieving my dreams, and I blew it, and I would never get a second chance. And that line of reasoning quickly spirals into suicidal ideation, because why even bother, you know, why even live? And when you'd rather be dead than alive, it's a very difficult mindset to pull yourself out of. Right now, like, you went through therapy, you ask help for recovering, and what did you do to to get yourself back into living and trying to get something back from for your life? So I haven't really fully recovered yet because this is all very recent, but I think I'm on the way. Three things have really helped me. And the first is trying to really focus on what I have. You know, I have a wonderful family, wonderful parents and a brother. I have a handful of friends who have been extremely supportive. Some have called me almost, in the beginning it was every day, and they would just speak with me for an hour, you know, and I was a, you know, a blubbering mess, but but they were, they were still there for me. 
And I have a girlfriend who I love more than anything and who has quite literally saved my life through, through all of this. And I don't take any of them for granted. And the second is not being afraid to ask for help. Before this happened, I'd never had a therapist. I'd never been on a psychiatric drive. I'd never dealt with any of that. And now I see a therapist every week. We talk about sex. We talk about psychology. We talk about, you know, things I can do to, to, to better integrate this into my identity and my experience of the world. Um, I'm on three psychiatric drugs. I'm Prozac, um, Wellbutrin and for the depression, and Clonopin for the anxiety. And I know there's sort of a stigma attached to being on these drugs and a stigma attached to depression in general, but honestly, they're they're a miracle of modern science. And, and they are what gives me the mental fortitude to get out of bed each day and, and deal with the world. And the third thing is honestly trying to understand what has happened to me, you know, what I've done and, and what has happened to me. And it's such a complicated thing. It's like, it's sexual and it's political and it's sociological and it's so many other things. And I've tried to understand this thing from every possible angle. So I've read everything from, you know, Oscar Wilde, um, who was pilloried for being and, and jailed for being gay, to Philip Roth, who, who writes a, a lot about male humiliation, to Rebecca Traister and Roxanne Gay and, and leading feminists. And it's, it's really helped me um, better understand the situation and incorporate it in, into who I am. And um, another thing I, I, I'd like to say, which is kind of weird, but when I told my girlfriend a, about my suicidal ideation, when I, when I finally opened up to her about that, she gave me this just really interesting advice, a really interesting mantra. And it sounds incredibly morbid um, and sort of wrongheaded, but it really helped me. And she said, you can always, there's this line, you can always kill yourself tomorrow. Like, death is irreversible. Suicide is irreversible. Once you've done that, you know, there, there's no going back. Um, but in life, change is the only constant. So what's the true cost of holding on just one more day? You know, and that's been my thinking every day for the past five months. Like, just take it day by day, and eventually things will be different. Things will change, you know. Just uh, one question that it was the book deal. Yeah. That was your passion, something you would have done in your life and that you really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Why don't you just write it right now, day by day, and try to see if ever, like, soon, anytime soon, something would happen? I, mean, I, I could. Um, and um, I, I probably will write it at some point because it's so important to me, but... Again, you know, it's it's what I was saying about identity, your identity. And, and this book was very closely tied to my identity as a journalist and as a China watcher and as sort of an amateur historian. Um, and this experience has sort of knocked all of that out of me. You know, I don't identify as that anymore. Like that's not like I'm not I'm not obsessed with China and with geopolitics and with history and our, our differing interpretations of, of sort of long past historical stuff the way that I was. I'm interested in questions of fairness and questions of free expression, questions of sex, you know, what's appropriate and what's not and how the world is changing, questions of due process. Uh, you know, these are the things that, that occupy my time. And so, you know, maybe I will get back to it. But, uh, but right now, I feel like that person who was writing that book is severely injured and it's going to take some time to, to get back into the right mindset. 
Wow, <laughs> right. it's, it's just bad to hear when someone loses their dreams and try and feels that there is no way out to go and get them back. Right. It's, well, I mean, it's a little bit. Yeah, it's it's really it's really really hard. And and so here's the thing: when when you've been in a situation like this, and this has been my life for the past nine months, when everybody seems to think you're an awful person, you've been painted as an awful person. I mean, I'm sure you, like you had a similar experience, right? With the Berlusconi thing. When people are painting you as this awful person over and over again, eventually you, you begin to, to believe it and to internalize it, you think. And at least I, I have, you yeah. know, you think. No, 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 yeah, I, I understand. Like for a while I stopped wearing clothes that would have like maybe made me look like I was a prostitute. Like right. I wasn't wearing high heels or wasn't wearing short skirts because I thought that maybe someone would have judged me. It took me a very long time after I could have like become myself again and not care about whatever people would say. And that's right. something maybe you would process in a while and maybe. understand. I hope and, so. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, so, you know, especially over the course of this corporate investigation this this LA Times investigation um are they still on no I, I so I was I was forced to resign in in August but you know it was just it was it was really hard so I I knew after Laura's allegation that people in Beijing had been spreading rumors about me and about my sex life and in the course of the LA Times investigation the foreign correspondence club you know back to that club it sent an email to all of its members encouraging them to send any complaints about me to my employer um, and so those rumors turned into allegations and, and they spanned from things that I remembered as awkward interactions to things that were blatantly untrue. So a former colleague of mine accused that this, there was one, there was only one of these allegations that had anything to do with workplace. Yeah. It's kind of like focusing the attention in saying like, do you think that woman, whatever, she could be a prostitute because she dressed this way? Right, and yeah. then everybody would like watch her and think like, oh, maybe yes. Exactly. It's like turning somebody upside down and shaking them until everything falls out of their pockets, you know? So like there was, mo the, you know, almost all of these allegations were about my, my personal life. One was about workplace conduct. Um, and that was when a former colleague of mine accused me of... Uh, giving her a condom in the office. And the, f I mean, it sounds pretty inappropriate, right? And the funny thing is that it's true, um, but there's a context to that. And, and the context is that I'd received this condom in a swag bag, you know, like a goodie bag, essentially, from a, a, a gay rights um, activist group while I was reporting on Occupy Central, which was a huge street protest in Hong Kong in, in I think, like, late 2014, I think. Um, and there was a, a political slogan on the condom wrapper, something, I forget exactly what it was. It was like, um, you know, I don't, I don't need sex, the government screws me every day, or like, come up and resist, or, you know, with cum spell, you know, something just, just kind of dumb. And this colleague and I, we'd work together on stories about Occupy Central. We'd work together on political slogans. We'd work together on stories about sex in China. We'd worked on a story even about condoms. Um, and so later when I was rummaging through my desk, I found this condom. I thought she might find it funny. I showed it to her. She didn't seem too bothered. And I didn't think of this exchange until she framed it as an accusation three or four years later. So she felt that that was inappropriate and maybe offended by yeah 
I mean, I've never spoken with her personally about it. Okay. I, I mean, she, she never... She never told you anything. She never told like me. She never complained. You, you know? seem like that wasn't appropriate or whatever. <laughs> so, the, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't know. You know, people don't tell you these things. And if I knew that you felt yeah, hurt, in, you in know? one episode, I'm speaking with one of my guests about being outspoken about what you feel, like communicate. Because, of course, in in a moment that maybe men realize how a woman is feeling, or um, there would be like there could be something good coming out. You know, right? Yeah, for learning, sure. Learning, trying to change your your behavior, and of course, like grow together in in a different situation. Right. For sure. Yeah. No. I, I and I think it's a it's such an important conversation. I I mean. One of the most enlightening things to me, or one of the most enlightening uh, points in the Me Too movement, happened when. Did you read the story Cat Person in the New Yorker about a bad date between this woman and this guy, and she's like much younger than him, and he's really awkward, and she ends up having sex with him, even though she doesn't really want to have sex with him. You know, she never says no, but she's clearly uncomfortable, and it's just a, a terrible sort of situation all the way around. And I remember reading that story and thinking, you know, I've never like thought about this sort of perspective here. You know, this has never really entered into the national conversation. Why yeah, Why a woman would have we, sex with a guy when she didn't really want to, you know? And I think it resonated with a lot of other people too. You know, it, it sort of gave voice to something that people were thinking, but people hadn't expressed well and, and that hadn't entered the national conversation. The Aziz Ansari thing did this as well. And and I'm I was really grateful to read that story, you know, and it gave me some really great perspective and on myself and my own actions. And, and I'm so glad we're having this cultural conversation around it now. But that's why I think it's important to talk, you know? So you're not against the Me Too movement. Like no, not at all. this, you have learned also to open your mind into watching the other people's feelings. Absolutely. And to like Absolutely. understand more women. Did you grow up with like sisters or? No, no, no sisters. Oh. I've always been very close with my mother. But, you know, in, in terms of these stories, the stories like mine where people perceive things in, in very different ways. And there's this classic saying that there's his story and there's her story and then there's the truth. And I am more than willing to concede that my memory isn't perfect um, and um, that I may have gotten some things wrong. But again, no one's memory is perfect. I just want, you know, I, I just want anybody listening to just think about how many interactions you have over the course of a day or a month or a year, like hundreds in a day, you know, so like hundreds of thousands of interactions with people socially, sexually, professionally over the course of a lifetime. And just ask, like, I mean, can you tell me with 100% certainty that all of those people felt 100% good and comfortable with those, with every one of those interactions, that you've never hurt anybody unintentionally or made them even feel uncomfortable or awkward? And like, sometimes we just don't realize what we're doing even if our intentions are pure. Um, and so, you know, on, on the thing about these, these hookups specifically, Time Magazine ran this story in May, and the headline, I'll just sort of read off, it's a very short thing from, from this story. The headline was, Why Men Need to Stop Relying on Nonverbal Consent, According to a Neuroscientist. And the author, uh, this woman, Lisa Feldman Barrett, she's a PhD in neuroscience, and she writes, the human brain is wired so that people see what they believe. In many cases, without verbal consent, two people's brains can perceive the same events very differently. They can, in effect, be experiencing different situations. To continue, 
because your brain is always guessing, facial movements are terrible indicators of consent, rejection, and emotion in general. So a smile can mean I'm happy or I consent, but it can also mean I'm embarrassed or I'm plotting your downfall or you're much stronger than I am, so I better play along. Um, so I wish every single day um, that I communicated better with Felicia and Lauren. This could be like the advice you wanted to give out. Yeah, so it's it's why I'm I'm grateful for this for this national conversation we're having about affirmative consent. I think it's the right thing. I mean, I don't think it's a silver bullet. You know, many women have told me that a guy can ask permission every step of the way and still be a creep. You know, the woman can say yes but feel kind of pressured. You know, it's it's not a cure all, but it seems like a big step in the right direction. Um, you know, I, I think people should communicate much better, and I I hope people would be kind. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan, for opening up to this that happened to you. And so that maybe if somebody is living in, in this situation as well, or as you were saying, I mean, the Me Too movement is doing something good. For sure. But uh, there is also like a side not told in the right way. It's um, complicated. Yeah, it's you know? complicated. But anyway, you lost everything. You went through things that I uh, wish to no one because, of course, thinking about ending their lives is, is, is very, very much. Yeah. And um, I just wanted to know if you're willing to give advice to anybody, if there is any place they can reach out to you, if you wanted to tell. Sure, like I, just, or... I just hope people can, can listen to each other and, and keep an open mind and, and communicate better. You know, to be careful about how other people feel. You know, I've, I've learned that. Um, I'm off social media right now. Okay. Um, I, I find it, I still find it kind of distressing, but if anybody wants to send me an email, you can reach me at um, johnkamen1, that's J-O-N-K-A-I-M-A-N-1, at gmail.com. Um, you know, I'm very interested in continuing this conversation. And Amra, I just want to thank you again you know, I have enormous respect for you. And, um, and, uh, you know, I think you're very brave. And I, I know it sounds very trite, but I hope we can all be kinder to each other and, and we can be more forgiving. Yeah, that's, that's also what I tried to get out from this. Like if someone feels that um, wanted to be forgiven and try to do their best to change this for the future and for others. Right. There must be given a chance for it. Right. And um, yeah, to our listeners, there is the email in our words at univision.net that you could use to reach out to me if ever you wanted to tell your experiences, if you're having any friends that maybe is going through this situation, this kind of situation that you're trying to help. And nothing, I'll just have you for the next episode, hopefully. And bye to everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much. Aloha, mamá. ¿Dónde andas? <laughs> Seguro de compras. Tengo mucho que contarte. Hawaii es increíble. He estado de un lado a otro comunidad. Todos son super talentosos. Ya reparamos otro helicóptero Blackhawk y oficialmente formamos nuestro equipo de fútbol. Para la próxima, te cuento cómo voy con el surf y me cuentas qué te pareció el podcast que te compartí. ¿Ok? Te quiero mucho. Be all you can be. Visitando goarmy.com diagonal español.
Boost Mobile tiene una gran oferta para que aproveches tu reembolso de impuestos al máximo y te mantengas conectado. Al cambiarte a Boost, recibe un 50% de descuento en tu primer mes de datos ilimitados. O, con un plan ilimitado de 40 dólares, llévate un Samsung Galaxy A15 5G por $39.99. Obtén los mejores teléfonos en las redes 5G más grandes del país. Con Boost Mobile, cambiarse es fácil. Solo visita BoostMobile.com. Boost Mobile, sin miedo al éxito. Para clientes nuevos y solamente en línea, requiere Arobay. 50% de descuento en el primer mes requiere un plan de $25 al mes. Aplican otras restricciones. Visita BoostMobile.com. Punto com para detalles. 